Turn with me to the book of Ecclesiastes. We're going to be in chapter 4 this morning, as Adam read earlier. We're in a section, we started last week, but we're going to continue this week, that I've entitled, Yeah, But What About blank? And this is kind of part two of, Yeah, But What About, okay? And, and what we've seen is we've kind of just dealt with the flow of the book so far. What we've seen is a couple of things. Uh, the first part of the book, remember, he, he walks us through these dead-end streets and says, you're not going to find purpose, lasting meaning, or value in life apart from fellowship with the Lord. He, he kind of walks us through these dead-end streets. We get to the end of chapter 2, the beginning of chapter 3, and we begin to see that divine perspective reign in. Begins to, to convince us that God's got times and seasons under his control, that he's completely in control, that he wants to make all things beautiful in his time, and it's seems like the book should end right there. But like we said last week, Solomon is real. Solomon can be very raw. And, and I like that because typically we have real questions. We have raw questions for the Lord. And that's the section that we get into here. He's, he's got this, this introduction of, yeah, if God's in control, what about blank? What about blank. What about blank? And he goes through about six facts. And we started last week, we gave a preview of these six facts. We covered two of them last week. But the first thing we looked at last week um, at the end of chapter three was that there's injustice in, in our court system or Solomon's day in the court system, maybe even in the religious court system. We looked at the fact that death comes to all, whether you're a, a man, a woman, an, an animal, right? We looked, we, we know that Last week, we, we found out that cats don't go to heaven, and, and neither do dogs, unfortunately, right? The man's spirit goes up, animal spirit goes back into the ground. Um, sorry to break the news, you, you cat lovers, but that was actually never in the cards, uh, biblically. Just kidding. All right. So here's some more previews, and this is what we're going to look at this morning. Um, what about oppression? What about people in power taking advantage of people who have less power. And we'll, we'll look at this anomaly or apparent contradiction this morning, if God's in control. What about people who are, who are envious, striving for levels of power and then creating levels of envy? And we'll look at that this morning as well. And then next week, we'll look at people being isolated and the fact that popularity is temporary. And as I mentioned, this is what uh, we're going to look at this morning. And so this is one of those things... Um, we're really, if, if we want to put it in modern language, we, we want to we look at these, these apparent contradictions and really we want to ask the question, what's up with that, right? This happens in our life, God. We see this in our culture, God. We see this in under the sun. God, what's up with that? That's, that's really the question that comes out of all of these apparent contradictions is, is, God, what's going on? If you're in control, if you care, if you've got times and seasons for all these things, and I see this in life, what's up with that? Maybe you don't speak that way, man, that's too modern, but you might say, God, what's going on? How, how can you allow that? And, and so just to kind of cut to the heart, that's what we're looking at this morning. And, and one of the things that we're going to see is that Solomon doesn't give a comprehensive list of everything that goes wrong under the sun, but he he uses these six fill-in-the-blanks to kind of give us that picture that anything that you have that you might question God and say, God, what's up with that fits into this area. And that's what we want to see as we go through this. Now, one of the things that's, that's interesting, and I love this, and, and hopefully you do too, I love when Scripture comments on Scripture. 
Uh, scripture is always the best interpretation of Scripture. And so this morning, as we dive into this section, I want to show you another passage in Scripture that summarizes what we're going to look at today. And go with me to Psalm 73 for a second. So you got 10 fingers. I'm going to keep one in Ecclesiastes and one in Psalm 73, and then the other eight fingers are free to do whatever you'd like to do with them. So Psalm 73, this is a a psalm by Asaph. And those of you might be very familiar with this psalm. This is basically another very raw and real section of scripture where Asaph's kind of complaining about what he's seeing in the world. I'm not going to read all of it, but I do want to start in verse two. Let's read a couple verses. It'll give you uh, the flavor. He says, "But, but as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped for I was envious of the boastful. When I saw the prosperity of the wicked, for there are no pangs in their death, but their strength is firm. They are not in trouble as other men, nor are they plagued like other men. Therefore, pride serves as their necklace. Violence covers them like a garment. Their eyes bulge with abundance. They have more than heart could wish. They scoff and speak wickedly concerning oppression. They speak loftily. Have your... Have your feet in life ever almost slipped because you've seen the same things that Asaph is talking about? I mean, these, I mean, we kind of joked about it last week, but the person that speeds by you on a road and you're just dying to see a cop pull him over a mile ahead, aren't you? Isn't, I mean, aren't you just revved up for, don't you want them to learn a lesson? That's kind of the injustice, but there's more here. Not, not only that, but notice he mentions these, these words that we're going to look in our passage today. He was envious. They, uh, I think verse five said, um, maybe it's not verse five. Um, hmm, it's escape. Oh, verse eight. They scoff and speak wickedly concerning oppression. We're going to look at oppression this morning. And, and so that kind of gives the flavor of the whole psalm. But here's the great thing about where Asaph gets, and I think it's the great thing about where Solomon eventually wants us to get, is we jump down to verse 16 and 17, and he said this, when I thought how to understand this, it was too painful for me, look at verse 17, until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I understood their end. And see, he comes back to divine perspective. And and I encourage you this morning, uh, you may relate more to this contradiction section than you did to the previous section about God being in control. But just remember this, as you observe life under the sun, always come back to divine perspective. Always take into consideration the fact that God is is in control, may seem out of control. In fact, when we view individual scenes of life, oftentimes it feels like it's out of control. Let's just be honest. That's, That's the issue. That's the tension. But to always bring that divine perspective back so that we might start to view life in terms of the way God sees it. You know, I've probably used this example before, but if you've ever been to a live parade, you know, I, I actually, for the first time in many years, watched part of the thanks, Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade on TV. I never usually watch that. I'm usually doing something else. This year, I actually watched it. And you know what I love about that parade? They, you don't have to move, like from your TV, and they're always bringing the axe right in front of you. And if there's any delays, they just cut to commercial. So it's like, you don't even have to, I mean, you're not waiting for delays in the parade. And I don't know if you've ever attended a parade live, but I remember attending a parade as a high school person and the, and the poor float that was in front of us got stuck right there. 
And, and we didn't know why. And we're sitting there going, why won't this float move? Like, look how open it is up there. Why won't they move? I want to see this next float. I want this float. Well, later on, what do we find out? Well, there was a, a breakdown about a mile down the road in the float cycle. And before they all got crunched up into a ball, they stopped this float in front of us. See, I didn't have that big perspective. I saw the float in front of me and I was upset that this guy wouldn't move. We're yelling at him, move, put the accelerator, go. You know, and because it looked open, we didn't have the full picture of the parade. And see, God's got the full picture of the parade of our lives. And sometimes we don't recognize that. And so it's always good, even when we say what's up with that, to say, you know what, God, I don't understand, but I recognize that you're in control. You care. You're going to turn, you're going to make all things good, as he says. And so let's jump back to Ecclesiastes 4 with that introduction in mind. In fact, verse 1, Solomon is going to circle back to something that he's left. Verse 1 says this, then I returned And considered all the oppression that is done under the sun. And look, the tears of the oppressed, but they have no comforter. On the side of their oppressors, there is power, but they have no comforter. And so now Solomon, he says he's going to return. You you see those words, I returned and considered. He's going to move back to life under the sun. Because what did he end chapter 3 with? The event that ends life under the sun, death. He's, you know, he's moving back to what he's observed and he's going to consider. And what we see in this section, verses 1 through 3, is he's going to specifically observe uh, and make judgments on all the oppression that he views on the earth. And when we think about oppression, what kind of list can you put together yourself of the oppression that you've seen on the earth? You know, there are, there are lists of injuries that can be done to people that can be done to their property, that can be done to their name by a host of people that are in power or authority over them. And we could just list a couple, bosses, government officials, judges, we looked at last week. What about fathers? What about husbands? What about anybody that holds an authority position in the church even, right? Those are oppression as you look across society. You could even say uh, law enforcement, any, any kind of any kind of somebody with power or authority that can oppress or, or basically treat somebody with power in a way that benefits themselves. Let's, let's just define it that way. Oppression being power used for power to benefit themselves or to benefit their cause or whatever that might be. What kind of list could you put together for that? Well, I think we could put together a long list of stuff that we've even observed. And this is what Solomon is discussing here. And he's talking about human oppression. The word itself refers to a state of causing trouble and hardship to another. Um, Some have even translated this word extortion. So it it gives you a picture of what he means when he says in in verse 1, he considered all the oppression, all the extortion, all the ways that people take advantage of other people when they have power This is what he's talking about here. And so now he's turning his attention to all of the human-caused trouble, not just death or uh, apparent injustice, but all of the human-caused trouble and hardship uh, that people give to one another under the sun. This is an intentional oppression that he's talking about between human beings, not at the courthouse, not at the the temple as we, we looked at last week, but between human beings on a daily civic basis. And you know, it begs that question. 
What's up with that, God? You know, that question comes out. How could any of this fit into God's plan? How could any of this fit into God's times and seasons for life under the sun? This is the whole point of bringing this, this up. And so from a secular perspective or just a under the sun, horizontal perspective of life, you can see why people would say, what's the motivation then to act righteously or to act evil? I'm just, I'm just going to get mine and I don't care who I run over to get it. And you know what? If they oppress me, then I need to create a power shift so that I can oppress somebody else. And I used to hate that in high school basketball. You know, when I was a sophomore in high school, I was playing basketball and I was with a group of seniors who thought it was their God-given right to punish underclassmen. Anybody ever been in a situation like that? I hated it. I had this senior, he was 6'7", about 250, and he came up to me and he said, hey, we're having a basketball party. And I said, and I, I said great, I'm invited. You know, he's actually telling me about it. He says, and we're having it at your house. No, uh, really? <laughs> I have to ask my parents. He's like, no, no, we're having it at your house. And this was the kind of stuff they would do to me. And of course, carrying the bags and picking up their dirty socks and other undergarments and things like that. And, and you know, I made a point that, that year, my sophomore year to say, you know what? When I'm a senior, I'm not going to do that to underclassmen. I'm just not. I'm just not going to get into that. And yet, this is kind of the response many times, even when people are oppressed. They think that the goal is to get power so that I can oppress somebody else and see how it feels. And so you can see from a very secular, under the sun, horizontal perspective why people would actually get angry about this. In fact, without divine viewpoint, none of this makes sense. And it's just a constant source of anger and frustration for people. And that is how much of the world lives is in this very manner. In fact, when you go to multiple cultures, you see this hierarchical, dominating power structure play out um, even, even more specifically. And then Solomon goes on to this because he, he observes something else, which really, I think, uh, breaks his heart. He says, and look, the tears of the oppressed, but they have no comforter. And this, this phrase and look is a demonstrative. It's an emphatic marker. He's, he's calling attention to the fact that, that people are weeping over this oppression. And that breaks his heart. He hates to see it. The fact that they don't have anybody that can comfort them. You know, and, and oppressed people are shedding tears here because they're, they're emotionally distressed about the way that they're being treated. And, and the people are intentionally causing this, this hurt. You know, and that's another thing, you, you, if you've ever seen in life where somebody is mistreating somebody, somebody's responding emotionally, and then they don't back off. They keep pushing. They keep pushing. They keep pushing. And there's nobody there to step in for that person. It just breaks your heart. Uh, as a dad, it makes me mad, right? I, I would just want to defend as, as, a, as a dad, especially. I just want to defend. And you know, it often happens because of this reason, there's a, there's a difference in, in power structure and authority. Sometimes people in power can get away with treating people like this, and there's nothing an oppressed person can do. And this is why Solomon is saying, what's up with that? That just doesn't seem right. And I mentioned last week even my, my wife's grandfather who, who worked his entire life lo loyally 
for this one company and he gets to the end. He's ready to collect his pension, enjoy his retirement years. And he finds out that they've spent the pension money and he doesn't have it. And he spent his, the rest of his days bagging groceries as a local grocery store to make ends meet. He's bagged groceries until the day he died. And you think that's not fair. And that's exactly what the type of stuff Solomon is talking about here. And, you know, one of the things that we, we, we see, and maybe we put it in this way, is that oppressed people have no leverage. You, know, you talk about leverage in negotiations, right? And you talk about, well, if they need something from me and I need something from them, then we both have leverage. But if I don't need anything from you and you need everything from me, then I maintain all the leverage. This is what happens in these types of relationship with oppressed people. The, the, the oppressed people have no leverage. They've, they've got no help. They've got no ability to, to push back. They just have to take it. And oftentimes they're disadvantaged members of society who are treated unjustly by those who have taken advantage of them. And Solomon as the king observes this. He sees this. And, and even though he's lusciously living life in the palace, it still bothers him uh, to see this, especially when he's trying to consider divine perspective and how this all fits together. And so notice that Solomon notices that the oppressed here have no one who consistently takes up their cause and that this oppression happens time and time again with no relief. He says it this way, on the side of their oppressors, there is power, but they have no comforter. And the idea is that they can do nothing to stop this. And so he's painting the picture of this apparent contradiction to the fact that God's in control and that God's good. Well, if God's really good, how could he allow this? You can kind of see the picture uh, that he's painting. And so from a biblical divine viewpoint perspective, we looked at this last week, God's going to make things right. He's going to execute justice. But again, what was our problem last week? He doesn't always do it in our full purview in our life under the sun. In other words, we don't always see it. We don't always see it in life. And so it seems like people are getting away with things. That's frustrating. Even for a believer who has a divine viewpoint, when you and I are wronged or mistreated or oppressed by somebody in power, we just have a natural desire to to visually see them pay for it. Just kind of a natural desire to see that. And so God is going to take and make all these things right. He may just not do it in our lifetime. And so when Solomon sees this, he's now going to verbalize two conclusions based on this observation. This is what we get in verses two and three. And the first conclusion he's going to come up with is, you know what? You know what? It's just better to be dead than alive. It's better to just die than to have to watch people get oppressed or have to experience oppression. This is how he says it, verse two. Therefore, I praised the dead who are already dead more than the living who are still alive. And you can see just from this verse and the way Solomon puts this in very raw form, when you're, when you're observing life under the sun, you're carefully, you're studiously paying attention. You can see why many people say life's worthless. Life's meaningless. You, you can see why people say it's unfair. You can see why people have this fatalistic view on anything good happening in their life. And you can see why people get mad at God. And they began to impugn God's character and they began to criticize God and critique God. From an under the sun perspective, you can see why they get there. You can, you can see we, we all have these kind of 
frustrations. And, and notice, therefore, is going to give us that key in this verse that he's making a conclusion. Uh, but again, Solomon's conclusion here is strictly based on under the sun. He's taking the side of those who are looking horizontally without divine perspective and saying, yeah, but what about this? What about that? And so this is one of his conclusions. And he says this, I praise the dead who are already dead more than the living who are still alive. Again, his conclusion is better to be dead than alive with, than to deal with this kind of oppression. Might as well, it's better just to die than to have to deal with this kind of oppression. In fact, Solomon uses some pretty strong language when he says praised. Uh, it means to make exuberant statements as to the excellence of someone. And, and we can tell that he felt very strongly about this because it uses the PL stem in the Hebrew, which is, is an emphatic stem in the Hebrew language. And you can say that, uh, you can use the word, I'll just give you another example. You can say, uh, I killed somebody. You can use it in a cow stem. It's very basic. It just gives the facts that you murdered somebody. Or you could say, I brutally slaughtered somebody. That would be the PL stem. It's very emphatic, okay? So he's not just saying, yeah, I kind of, I just think that's better. He's like, no, I, I got up, I raised my hands, and I said, man, better that you're dead than alive. Like, really emphatic, excited uh, praise. If you, if you, he felt really strongly about this, and it's very important to get that, that he's identifying with the oppressed here. And this strong feeling, this sense of, uh, of desiring justice. But then he goes a step further with his second conclusion. Look with me at verse 3. He says, no, 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 maybe it's not better that you're, you're dead. Maybe, verse, maybe it's better you never born. Like, let's just take it to that extreme. It's better you never even existed. Because at least if you're dead, it means you were alive to see some of the oppression. So you know, let, me take, let me walk that back. It's better that you're not even born. And he says it this way, yet better than, uh, better than both is he who has never existed, who has not seen the evil work that is done under the sun. And so he goes a step further. Why does he say this? Well, again, the dead is at some point they've experienced life. They've experienced this oppression from human beings. And so even though earlier he recognized that God's just, he allows that certain times and seasons are for everything. Solomon personally on a heart level deplores this particular anomaly. He hates to see people be oppressed. In fact, Solomon goes so far as to call the oppression he has seen, evil work. Look at verse 3 again. Who has not seen the evil work that is done under the sun? Again, he's talking, he's referring to oppression. He calls it evil. And, and, and in many ways, oppression is evil. And this is what he sees. And he's trying to regulate that with what he understands about God. And so when he views life from under the perspective of under the sun, Oftentimes, false charges come up against God. We mentioned that earlier, but you'll see that in life. You'll see that when people typically are angry with God, you can typically point to an event or a trial or a circumstance or a set of circumstances that have happened that have caused them to respond that way. And, you know, in all fairness to those people, um, that's hard. That's hard when you have a tragedy hit you that knocks the absolute wind out of you. And, and it's, it's, it's real easy to say, oh, well, I would never do that if that happened to me. But quite frankly, we don't know. Sometimes you, something happens and hits you in such a way that your reaction 
is not the right reaction. It's not the proper reaction. Maybe you don't take divine perspective. Maybe you say, well, yeah, I lost my dad, but, but God, I wanted him for another 20 years. How dare you take him from me? How dare you take that job from me? How dare you get in the way of my, pro-? I mean, there's so many things we can fill in the blank. And oftentimes God gets the blame. God gets the criticism And that's going to happen when we just consider life under the sun from a horizontal perspective without taking into consideration that God is is in control and he's got a plan for everything. And so as we go to verse four, we're going to move into a different section. But I think the flow of thought is this. You know, if, if the oppressed, if the issue for them is power, then what's the solution? I need more power. I, I, need, to, I need to get further along in life, I, I, maybe the solution is just to get ahead. But what we're going to find in the next couple of verses is men and women are just as cruel to each other in competition as they are in oppression. That's what we're going to see in the next section. In fact, verse 4, he says this, Again, I uh, saw that for all toil and every skillful work, a man is envied by his neighbor. This also is vanity and grasping for the wind. Solomon, he's going to now turn his focus on those who are skilled in what they do. And surely that would be something positive to go after in life, right? Just, well, you don't want to be oppressed? Get good at something. Get, get into a power position, right? Get, get somewhere where you can't be oppressed. Have a skill set, a distinction that somebody can't press you down. You can defend yourself. You've got the ability to do that. But now Solomon's going to observe something that is surprising. And, and that's this. When a man or woman pursues work and they, and they work hard at becoming specialized or distinct in their labor, it can have a negative impact uh, in their relationship with others. And in other words, it puts a target on their back. We're going to see that it, it creates envy by this man's neighbor. And it was rightfully said, the law of the business world is the law of the jungle. There's not a whole lot different there. I mean, we, we enjoy watching, well, maybe not all of us. Some of us enjoy watching lions like chase down zebras on National Geographic. It's a lot of fun. But, you know, the same stuff happens in the business world. Just it's not on TV. It's not as graphic. You know, the blood's not squirting everywhere and, and, and they're not eating you, right? But it's the same law. The law of the jungle is the law of the business. It's the same exact thing. And so we kind of see that here. And so when Solomon observed that when one is skilled in some area of life, inevitably it puts a target on their back for their neighbor to be jealous of them. In fact, we see this word envy. It means, it's interesting. It means a state of ill will ranging even to anger based on a perceived advantage. If you have an advantage over me, I want what's worst for you. That's kind of the idea. If I perceive that you're better at me, I want you to go down because then that raises me up. This is what envy does. And now he's saying, so it's not a power play issue. That's not the issue is to, to get more power. Because when you do that, you're going to put more of a target on your back. And so some successful people, uh, as we saw in verses 1 through 3, they'll oppress others wrongly, whereas some successful people are envied and despised wrongly. So now you've got the other perspective of that power. Once you reach that state, now you've got somebody nipping at your heels. Or now you've got somebody with a scope on you for a different reason than the fact they're wanting to hold you down. Now they're wanting to knock you down 
not hold you down. And so you see um, this, these anomalies. And, and again, Solomon's like, what's up with that, God? Like, I mean, you can't get ahead. You can't stay down. You can't. And, and you'll see the frustration come through as he goes through. Now, I will say this. Um, there is another possible interpretation of verse 4, and I just want to mention it to you. And I think both of them are, are really good and valuable points. And that is that the person who does the specialized work does it because they're envious of their neighbor. We've heard this phrase, keeping up with the Joneses, right? So I'm envious of my neighbor, and so now I want to work and get better than my neighbor, and that's my whole motivation for trying to pursue success. In fact, if you've got an ESV or an NASB translation, you'll, you'll see kind of the flavor of that interpretation as their understanding uh, of what the verse is saying, the fact that maybe the reason I, I'm growing is in success is because I'm envying my neighbor versus me growing in success and having my neighbor envy me. I think both are very uh, applicable here. And so what does he say uh, at the end of verse four? He says, he, he's observed this. I saw that for all toil and every skillful work, a man is envied by his neighbor. Notice his conclusion. This also is vanity and grasping for the wind. So we come back to this concept of vanity, right? Remember vanity, mist, fog, transitory, trying to reach out into the fog and grab some and bottle it up for later. You can't do it. You can't get your, your hands around it. This is what he comes back to here. And so even this, this concept of developing a specialized skill or rising to the top in one's field of training, it's transitory and not lasting. And anybody that's ever grown in their business career understands this. You know, the corner office doesn't magically make all of your problems with your marriage and your kids and every other aspect of life just go away. The corner office doesn't do that. In fact, many times the corner office, uh, you didn't realize it, but there's like bullseye target practice on your back now on a daily basis. They didn't tell you that. That wasn't part of the benefits package you signed on for. Right? That was kind of in the fine print somewhere that doesn't get printed. Is all of a sudden now more problems may, may have occurred. And so being the most skillful um, at something does not provide lasting meaning in life. In fact, no one, uh, in fact, uh, it could cause more trouble. And this is, this is what we're talking about here. And so, um, so you've got this, and notice how Solomon does this. We'll, we'll see this as we go to verse 5. He, he, he talks in terms of extremes. And so now he's got this skillful worker, and, and they're going to be envied. And so what's the extreme reaction? You know, you talk to people all the time, and there's, we, we like to pendulum swing. You, you've heard that phrase, we just swing from one pendulum extreme to the other. Well, he's going to do this, because now he's going to consider the exact opposite, not somebody that's pursuing excellence that may be envied. Now he's going to deal with a lazy bum. Verse 5 He's going to go the opposite extreme, and he's going to say, the fool folds his hands and consumes his own flesh. The fool folds his hands and consumes his own flesh. What does he mean here, the fool folds his hands? Well, what we're looking at is the exact opposite of verse 4. To fold your hands in, in Old Testament terminology implies that the person is sleeping they're being lazy, or they're not using their hands to work. In fact, it's used that way in Proverbs 6.10. Uh, the, the Proverbs uh, says this, a little sleep, a little slumber, 
a little folding of the hands to sleep. And so you see that this is kind of what that means. It's, it's laziness. You're not getting out of bed. So if I'm going to try to get to the top of my field and I'm going to be envied for that, then why even try, right? That's kind of the idea. I'll just stay in bed. I'll just eat pizza. I'll watch old reruns of MASH. I'll eat ice cream, bonbons. I'm not going anywhere. I'm going to play video games. I'll live in the basement. I don't care if it's finished. That type of person, right? It's just, I'm checking out of life. And I love what Dr. Tom Constable says here. Let me just read this quote. As we transition from verse four to five, he says, we pass from the rat race with its hectic scramble for status symbols to the dropout with his total indifference. His idleness eats away not only what he has, but also what he is, eroding his self-control, his grasp of reality, his capacity for care, and in the end, his self-respect. And this is what's so interesting. Notice verse 5 again. Read it in your, your own text. The fool folds his hands and notice, and consumes his own flesh. This is self-destructive behavior that we see with the fool. And so in verse 4, we saw the person who pursued excellence, but they incited envy from others. And in verse 5, we see the person who's basically a dropout dud living in total indifference. So you see the, the contrast there. One's a slacker, uh, the other one's a high achiever. And, um, but what we're going to see, uh, and, and as we kind of picked up from that last phrase in verse 5, is there's consequences to this type of mindset or approach to life. And the consequence is that you would consume, the fool consumes his own flesh. The, the word consumes means to eat or to destroy or to ruin. And so Solomon's showing these two contrasts, that if you pursue something and have success, you'll be envied. But if you lie around lazy, you'll just rot away. And, you, and those of you that have been through the study so far, have studied Ecclesiastes, you know what Solomon's about to conclude. It, it's about to get ugly, right? I mean, his, his, whole, his whole deal for doing these pendulum swings, well, if I do this, this is what happens. And if I do this, this is what happens. And what's he about to say? Well, it's all worthless. You know, it's all... It's all vanity. I, I, I don't know what to do. All of these competing tensions in life. And he's like, so what's, what's up with that, God? You know, this is, again, the mindset of somebody that's kind of asking these questions of God. And so either way, as he puts this out, it doesn't seem to have any point to live. And you can, again, see why people view life fatalistically when they're just considering things carefully that they see on this earth. You can see why that fatalism comes full force. And so now we get to Solomon's conclusion for this section, which ironically isn't as bad as I made it out to be. It's not, a, it's not actually a bad conclusion here that he comes up with. It, again, he's viewing life on a horizontal plane, but he's actually going to sprinkle in a little bit of wisdom here that's repeated elsewhere. And so let's look at verse 6. He says, better a handful with quietness than both hands full together with toil and grasping for the wind. And so better a handful with quietness. What's he talking about here? Well, a handful of quietness is not total success or specialized skill, but it's also not being completely lazy with nothing. It's, it's right kind of in the middle of the road, right? It's, it, it's getting enough to, to survive comfortably, but not standing out 
to be envied, right? It's kind of that middle of the road, which quite frankly, did Solomon know anything about middle of the road? No, that dude was like off the charts, extravagant, right? Like lamb chops every day and like multiple lamb chops every day and whatever he wanted, uh, he got, you know? And so he didn't understand this, but, but he makes a very uh, wise observation. In fact, um, although this is, is simply human viewpoint, there's still a lot, of, a, a level of wisdom in what he's saying here as it relates to per- pursuing things in life. In fact, even in, in the New Testament, 1 Timothy 2.2, 2, remember Paul uh, commands us to pray for the governing authorities. And why does, he, why does he say that? So that, and this is what he says in verse 2 of 1 Timothy 2, we might lead a quiet, notice that word, quiet, and peaceable life in all godliness and reverence because what? This is good in God's sight. A, a quiet life. Look at verse 6 of Ecclesiastes 4. Better a handful with what? Quietness. Have you ever said to yourself, my life is boring and quiet and like been frustrated with that? No, that's cool. That's good sometimes for it to be quiet and restful. Uh, if you're a drama lover, your life is never quiet, right? Because even when you don't have drama, you're creating it. You're looking for it. No, it's actually nice to have a quiet and peaceable life. It's good in the sight of God. We can, when life is quiet and peaceable, we can actually focus on the things that God wants us to focus on instead of reacting to all the circumstances that hit us on a daily basis. And so uh, there's a difference between responding to the Lord and reacting to circumstances. And many times, many of us, unfortunately, live in reaction mode. We just react, react, react. So he says this is better than both hands full. It's better just to have one hand full, which means what? Your other hand's empty and to have a quiet and a peaceable life. This is what he's getting at here. And, you know, there's also another passage as as we turn to another Old Testament wisdom literature, Proverbs. You can write this down. I'm going to read it. I'm not going to turn there just for sake of time. But Proverbs 30 verses 8 through 9 says this. It's the same exact concept that Solomon is sharing here. He says, remove falsehood and lies far from me. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food allotted to me, lest I be full and deny you and say, who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. You see what he says there? Don't make me rich, but don't make me poor. Just just give me one handful. (laughs) Give me one handful with quietness. Then I can see daily I need to depend on you. I'm not going to get too rich that I forget about you, but I'm not going to get too poor where I curse you for making me poor. I just want my daily bread, right? Isn't that something else that we see in the New Testament, that prayer uh, that that God would give us our daily bread? That's kind of the concept that he's showing here. And then he goes on to contrast, then both hands full. And notice what comes with both hands full according to Ecclesiastes 4.6 together with toil and grasping for the wind. And see, this is one of the things that I think people find out over and over again through the course of human history is that when you pursue wealth and wealth is your primary objective, you don't realize the pain and the sorrow and the suffering and the trials that come with it oftentimes. And and I will say it this way. Many times we pray for wealth. I remember, I think I've shared this before as a young man. I was like, 
I want a Lamborghini. I want this. I want this big mansion. I want, you know, this house in Cabo. I want all this kind of stuff. And I thank God to this day that he never made me wealthy. Because what I have found is that any level of financial success I've ever had, it distracts me. It, it almost takes me down. It almost creates more work to maintain wealth than it does to make wealth. It's, it's insane the way that that works that way. And it's insane how easily distracted we can become with, with stuff. And there's negative things that come with stuff. I mean, anybody that's ever had stuff knows that. And I remember even just talking to people that have uh, an extra home, a vacation home, or rental property. And the more you own, the more headaches you have. I remember talking to a restaurant owner one time, and he said, and, and I was talking to him about his finances. I was working in real estate. We wanted to put him somewhere else. And he said, John, I have two restaurants right now, and that's all that I can handle. And I said, yeah, but you're, you're making so much money here in this first restaurant. You're making a million dollars. And he said, it's a million dollars worth of headaches. And he says, and I've got a second location, and that's a million dollar worth of headaches, and I'm not making a million dollars there. <laughs> and he says, that's the deal with stuff. It's, it provides headaches. And this is kind of saying there's, there's better to have one handful with quietness than two hands full with a bunch of junk. And that's kind of the, the deal here. In fact, when he talks about toil, the word itself means misery. I, we thought getting rich is great, right? It's all, hey, it's party time, right? We're, we're rich. We got it. Well, here we go. We're rich. We can do anything we want. He says it's misery. He says it's toil. And, and this is one of the things that we don't often understand is, is when riches come, oftentimes trials ramp up in your life because there's more stuff and things to, to maintain. And so Solomon's point is simply this. It's better in this life to be content with what you have than to push too hard, which adds all these things, toil, envy. None of these things have lasting value. Um, but it's also better not to push enough and waste away both literally and figuratively. This is the, the lazy bum reaction to riches. There, in fact, there's nothing spiritual about having riches or not having riches. You know, sometimes we often think that being poor is spiritual. Well, that's, that's not true either. <laughs> there's... There's nothing spiritual about any of that. It, you can have money, you can have no money. Depends on your, how you're relating with the Lord. And let me, just, let me just share one thing. I want to share in closing um, some divine perspective from 1 Timothy chapter 6. Turn with me there. I want you to read with me. 1 Timothy chapter 6 in terms of closing out. Uh, just this divine perspective of money as we've kind of just dealt with that a little bit here this morning. 1 Timothy 6, this is verse 6, and Paul writes this. Now, godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain we can carry nothing out. And having food and clothing with these, we shall be content. Remember the simple math that we mentioned a few weeks ago? Jesus Christ plus nothing equals everything. We're talking about contentment with regardless to your circumstances. But what was the other math equation? Jesus Christ plus everything or, or nothing uh, equals nothing. I messed up my math there. <laughs> Sometimes everything equals nothing. 
Having everything can actually make you empty because there's not contentment. But look at verse 9. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare. And notice he gets even more descriptive than what Solomon, you know, Solomon says, both hands full, together with toil, grasping for the wind. Paul gives us even more details. He says, those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare and into many foolish and harmful lusts, which drown men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil, for which some have strayed from the faith in their greediness and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. In fact, when you think of the parable of the sower and the seed, what does one of the seeds get choked out by? Well, the weeds. And what is it? It's the cares of this world, the deceitfulness of riches. And so it's got this potential impact to really distract. And so you can see the wisdom and how he closes verse six. And so next week, we're going to continue with, yeah, but what about blank? We're going to look at two more blanks. We're going to look at isolation, this, this idea, and we'll see how that flows together and then how popularity is also fleeting. So let's close with a word of prayer. Lord, I do thank you um, for your word. And just, and really, I think, Lord, just each week as we look at these different details, just the reminder uh, and the encouragement to each one of us that as we face life, as we face these different scenes, these different trials, that we would uh, be reminded, Lord, to, to mentally consider your perspective on everything that we go through, to, to understand and believe and be persuaded that you're in control, uh, that you, according to Romans 8, 28, and also Ecclesiastes 3, 11, that um, you're working all things together for our good. Um, Lord, we want to be reminded of that because things in life happen that, um, that always want to contradict that, that always want to make us question you. And so, Lord, as we sit here this morning not knowing what the, week, uh, the week's events hold for each one of us, um, the next month, the next year, et cetera, Lord, we want to, um, just as we're, as we're sitting here this morning, be encouraged to know that you're in control, you care, uh, you're working all things together for our good. And may we be reminded of that truth uh, as we go about our daily life. And we ask that in Jesus' name, amen.